Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy and I am joined as always by my co-hosts Zach Bryant and Chris Haskell. How are you doing today, guys? Hey, it's not the morning, so pretty good. Hey, that's great. It's it's getting late for me. The sun is setting, which is something we don't normally do on this podcast. Normally, I'm the guy who's chip and ready to go, and these are the Zach and Chris are the zombies just crawled out of bed sipping their coffees. <laughs> but uh, yeah, everyone's kind of fresh now, which is good. Um, yeah, we're we're going to jump straight into this week's episode. Um, the, the first film we're going to be talking about is a 1942 film um, from Preston Sturgis called uh, The Palm Beach Story. Uh, for those who aren't aware of the film, just to give you a brief synopsis, uh, an inventor needs cash to develop his big idea, so his adoring wife decides to raise it by divorcing him and marrying a millionaire. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those sort of 40s, what do they call them, screwball comedies that, that Howard Hughes pretty much invented. They mm. talk fast, it's action-packed, it moves fast, the plot doesn't really hang around, things happen pretty quickly. I didn't love this one as much as I like other screwball comedies. I, I do like screwball comedies for the most part. Uh, it happened one night. Amazing. His Girl Friday. Really, really great. Um, this one I didn't love as much. Uh, what do you guys think? Anyone want to jump in with some initial thoughts? I think Chris is the most negative. Um, I have a feeling. Like, I didn't love it either. So I'd like to hear what Chris uh, Chris's feelings were. Sure. I'll, go, I'll jump in. So... Uh, by way of objectively talking about the movie for a second, uh, they shoot pictures as it at three eighty eight. That's very um, high. That's where so is it high. on? They shoot zombies. I'm assuming <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> number top ten for they shoot zombies. We're being <laughs> um, um, I, I like I like what I've seen from Preston Sturgis so far. Like I love I, for for years. I talked about Sullivan's Travels being one of my favorite movies. Um, I think Sullivan's Travels has this incredible, insightful script that's like very kind of warm-hearted, but still funny and like kind of edgy and 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 sort of controversial at the time it came out of kind of making fun of people that want to like represent poor people by going to like live with them, even though they're being followed around by a van of luxury and all these crazy ideas. Like a very innovative story and like very progressive. Um, so I had really high hopes going into this movie, and I just I didn't connect with it at all. <laughs> Like uh, we we can get into it more here throughout the, as we're talking about it. But the biggest thing I'll say is like, everybody's an asshole except for, um, uh, let me see if I get the character's name here really quick. So John D. Hackensacker. Exactly. Yeah. The (laughs) JD Hackensacker, the third was a sincere character. um, And the husband uh, was kind of portrayed as, somebody who didn't really like the idea, but kind of like went along with it and sort of like was easily convinced and stuff. But just like the whole story was just full of like unsavory, like characters that I just didn't like. And so I I didn't connect to the story at all. I actually was quite annoyed by the end of the movie. Um, I'll stop there for now. I, yeah, I'm curious what y'all thought and we can dig into some more specifics on why I guess, but. Um, I like the movie okay. Like, it's not one I, I feel like I would ever rewatch. I just feel like, and this is going to be my bias of what I like, I just think it would work better as another genre. Like, there's, I mean, you, you look at the characters and what they're doing, you could almost see as um, them as almost like this, I don't want to say anti-Bonnie and Clyde type because they're kind of like fraudsters in a way, 
but in a sense, you know, they have this relationship that there's obviously like this, she loves me, she loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not sort of thing. And I think that's kind of fun. And I think that could be interesting in a different genre that isn't just purely fast paced comedy. Um, I think you could, there's just a lot more you can do with that. Um, I would, you know, like I said, my bias, it would have been cool to like see them sort of try to un- unwillingly work together to for some kind of common goal because it's just the plot is kind of weird anyway. The idea that she goes to I, I don't know if this is just like a 1940s thing that I'm unaware of, but you have to leave the city to go get a divorce. Like, I'm sure it's a joke and I just don't get it. And maybe it's where this movie's old, but it just really lost me a little bit. Yeah. I think it was something to do with this. Maybe it moves faster in Florida or something uh, or it's, it's Palm beach in Florida. Oh my yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't really get that part either. Uh, I'm glad you said it about the whole different genre thing. Cause like in my review, this is like pretty much what I wrote word for word in, another, in the hands of another writer or director it could have been a really great film noir uh, yeah i could see a film noir for sure like yeah even a funny even a more humorous one like one that doesn't get super serious but you know still i mean you can still have the comedy elements it, 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 and you know, like I'm, i know i'm the biased one who has a problem with comedy anyway so <laughs> take what i say with a grain of salt but um you know i i think i think there's a cool plot here it just didn't it wouldn't be one i'd rewatch I had some, there were some funny parts. Yeah, like the main part, main issue I had wasn't necessarily with the characters. I thought a lot of the characters were just very one dimensional. They weren't really developed very, very well. Um, mm-hmm. Like even, um, oh, what's her name? The um, Claudette Colbert, who was great in It Happened One Night. Even she wasn't very good in this. Um, my main issue was more about. Yeah, the plot wasn't great, but also like the pacing of the plot was pretty bad as well. It took forever to actually set up like the main goal of of trying to scam this Hackensacker guy. And then yeah. by the time they actually set it up, there's only like 20 minutes left. And then the film ends so abruptly, you know, it's just kind of like everything builds up. And just when you think just when you think the third act is going to kick in is where they just decide just to, oh we're going to complain everything and then everything still works out happy in the end anyway it just kind of feels like a weird it's a weirdly paced film that kind of writes itself into a corner and they don't want to go too dark with it they still want it to be funny so they just kind of tack on this ironic joke ending to try and still make the film light and yeah that that was my main issue with it. i just didn't really get the whole point of most of the plot this is going to be sound like a weird comparison, but just, and I don't want to, I don't know if we're going to talk about the ending, if we're going to spoil it or not, but just to kind of keep it vague. You, you know, had that like monster movies right now. Do what? You're going to go compare it to universal monster movies. I, I should, I should. No, I'm actually going to compare it to a Werner Herzog film. Um, oh, I don't know if I want to give away which one, but let's just say he worked on Nicholas cage that has a very, everything really works out and it's on purpose. Like the whole point is it's like, he has like all these problems and suddenly person after person comes through the door and all his problems are solved. And <laughs> it, it kind of feels like that, but I think it works better in that one. But it's, I do kind of like the ending of this just, just for that because it's so bizarre. Yeah. And I don't know if it's specifically because the writer is almost getting meta. Like I have no idea how to end this. So we're just going to do it. <laughs> it was or like, it was planned. <laughs> it was the only ending in which everyone came out winners and they decided, like in any other film, they'd say, well, we can't do this. <laughs> yeah. But then this one, they kind of said, 
it's a comedy, so we kind of can do this. And they just said, fuck it, and did it. Um, I, I, I don't feel like spoilers would be a terrible thing for this one, right? Or, or do I mean, it's not like it sets it up. It's not like you're going to guess the ending, because there's literally no setup for it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's just completely... Well, I suppose technically... Did they is, set it up? It is hinted at in the opening credits, because... Okay, oh, God, well, I forgot. I, was, spoiler, <laughs> I forgot. All warning. I'm going to go in officially with the spoiler warning. Here on... on for the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about the ending. So the ending of Palm Beach Story, if you've seen it or if you don't care about knowing the ending of a film that's like 80 years old, <laughs> is <laughs> um, basically after Tom and Jerry, who are the, the, the main characters who are trying to, hopefully trying to scam this uh, Hackensacker guy, decide that they're going to give up on their plot. They're just going to go home and they're going to stay married. Hackensacker's sad because he wants to marry Jerry. Hackensacker's sister is sad because she wants to marry Tom. And Tom and Jerry go, oh, but did you not know? We both have twin siblings. And they all just end up happy together with each with the two twins, marry the two rich people, and then Tom and Jerry stay together. And at the end, it's all three of them in a chapel. Now, it's completely out of left field, unless you kind of paid attention to the opening credits of the film, in which you see Joel McRae and Claudette Colbert running around getting ready for a wedding but they're in different situations and wearing different clothing. So then you realize at the end, you're actually looking at them and their twin siblings getting ready for this wedding. That's why they were wearing different clothes in the opening credits in in different scenes. You know, I I paid so little attention to the opening. Like, I just didn't even think about it. It was just... I think I was getting something to drink while it was going on. I'm not even going to lie. I think I went to get a bottle of water, so I completely missed that. I just thought it was so odd, especially for that era, because so, so many films in that era, the opening credits just happen over just a blank slate with some with some classical music. So I just thought it was weird that they were actually doing stuff during the opening credits. That's, that's why it, it, it caught my my eye. And I, did, I, I didn't really get what the opening credits were all about, because like it would there'd be one scene of Claudette Colbert in a car, and another she's like locked in a closet wearing different clothes and i'm like yeah. I, just, I just didn't get what was happening and then at the end it just kind of clicked because then it showed them all at, in the all three all six of them in, in the chapel that's a great point yeah that actually I, I totally forgot about that but i remember like watching the begin the, the intro kind of like what and then just sort of zoning out because like i don't understand what's going on yeah and it, it, you would <laughs> you would never even really think anything of it because obviously the film does not allude to them having twins in any other way throughout the whole rest of the film so it, it would never even bring your attention back to this they like they skip they skip into the sort of main sort of rumblings of the plot like immediately and yeah. you feel like if you have identical twins and you're in this type of situation i feel like it's almost a missed opportunity to already have them in the film and then to clear up who is who by the end, because I don't know, I, I feel like that would, I don't know, maybe not. I just feel like that's kind of a better way to do com- a, a comedy skit like that when you're going to use the twins at the end anyway. Basically, have them throughout the film. They just need to take the plot of any episode of Sister, Sister. And I've then... never seen that, so that sounds great. Do that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, just, yeah, just take... I don't know how you've never seen Sister Sister. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we're, we're the same age, but... Um, what yeah. channel did it come on? Oh, that's asking me an odd question. I didn't know if it was a Disney Channel thing or what. No, it wasn't Disney Channel. Um, I'm pretty sure it would have been like Nickelodeon. Maybe Fox. You know Tia and Tamara, though. Surely you're aware of Tia and Tamara. That isn't that so Raven, is it? Is that the same show? Are they? Okay. No, that's different altogether. Chris, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know Sister Sister? 
Um, I'm just looking it up right now. I've definitely I, I'm honestly just I'm I'm devastated right now that you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Apparently it was uh, probably on the WB stuff. Okay, I didn't watch a lot of that except for um uh the Animaniacs. There we go. Jesus. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna claim my. Uh, I was living in Indonesia at the time, so I'm gonna claim That's my. Very fair. You know, I'm gonna say Chris that Chris was living in piece. Indonesia at the time, so I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the plot of sister Tia and Tamara are these twin actresses, Tia and Tamara Mary, and the plot of every episode of, of Sister Sister is that because they're twins, they end up getting mixed up and in all sort of hijinks because they're twins. Uh, and I just okay. feel like it could have been applied to this film, as you were saying. Yeah, it, that'll work. Um, I'm it's glad like, I learned something new. It's on Netflix, so I'm gonna go binge watch it. Like that's literally what I've been doing. So just getting that, <laughs> just getting that nostalgia back. It's actually, it's 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 a funny show. It's actually very, um, uh, maybe raunchy is the wrong word, but there's a lot of a lot of adult oriented jokes in there. That's funny. Kids it's show. like the the horror movies where like everything happens and they wake up and it's a dream. This is like the comedy equivalent. Yeah, of the, that. yeah. It, honestly, it is. It's. I, I honestly, I don't know how, I don't know who wrote this film. I didn't look at the writing credits or if it was based on a novel or a play, like a lot of these early classic Hollywood films would have been. They're sort of treatments based on other treatments, based on plays, based on short stories, all that crap. Yeah. So I don't know how this fit into that mold, but honestly, I just feel like the the, the, the writer got to like page 150 of their script and they thought, oh, geez, how am I going to finish this film? Sturgis said, did write it. Sturgis, yeah. I feel like Sturgis has got to like page 150 of his script and thought, oh, geez, am I going to finish this? Yeah. Uh, just said, nah, let's just make them, let's, let's just make them confess, but it's all okay because they have twins. And Yeah, I mean, I at least appreciate that he just went like, at that one, you could like cop out the ending, but that's so much of a cop out that it almost turns around and works again. Like almost well, it's, <laughs> because it's like, so out there. It works because of the genre he's working in in screwball comedies, where so much crazy shit can happen. You know, it works because of the genre. If this was more straight laced, uh, it, it would never. It could never have possibly worked. Like even I, I would even think now, if you were to do like maybe like a romantic comedy nowadays, so which would have a lot less of this sort of fast paced silly comedy, would have a lot more drama thrown in. It wouldn't work. Like if 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 pre-McConaughey's Matthew McConaughey was to have made this film with Kate Hudson and that was the ending, people will be calling it terrible. I yeah. really want a remake with that. <laughs> yeah, Please. <laughs> McConaughey and Kate Hudson uh, are in the main, the main roles. Um, I feel like that's just the perfect pairing for a, a mid-2000s crappy romantic comedy. Um, but it would never, it would never fly. It, it can work in a screwball comedy because so much mad, crazy shit happens at such a fast pace in these films anyway. Yeah. The, the, the um, sorry, the speaking of kind of random here, but uh, you know, the guy that played Hackensacker was this extremely famous sort of like Justin Timberlake, Kanye West style, like singer entertainer that got into acting a little bit. And his name was Rudy Valley. And, I have to read this bit of his bio because, you know, we always like, I, I don't know about y'all, but I always think that uh, um, product placement has gotten worse, like over, over the years. Like this is like, you know, like it's worse than, but he was, so in the twenties and thirties, he had a hit radio program called the Fleischman Yeasts Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Appetizing. Yeah. 
Um, so anyways, I just thought that that was cracking me up. Fleischmann yeast hour. It's yeah. not even... I understand why they why they had to go down that route to try and market themselves. Like, there's not really a whole lot of ways you can market your company called Fleischmann Yeast. <laughs> you have to say, I feel like you have to try and associate yourself with someone who is thought of as cool in that time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that that was funny. But yeah, you know, it's I don't know. He, yeah, I feel like overall the film is just pretty pedestrian. Um, it's like if I was if someone wanted to get into screwball comedies, I probably wouldn't recommend this one. I'd recommend others for sure over it. Um, definitely, it happened one night at oh, his yeah. bill Friday. Um, maybe even like bringing up Baby, which I didn't love either, but maybe even bringing up Baby over this as well. Um, I just think I, I think the film is kind of I think it's too fast paced for its own good. I know that kind of sounds weird because I kind of criticized the pacing of the film earlier where it takes so long to get to what the main plot is. But so much crap happens also in the interim of getting there. Like everything that happens on the train, like none of that needed to happen, but yeah. it happens so fast as well. And Sturgis cut, I feel like he tried to cram so much into the, I, I, I'm, I'm still going to stand with my point I made earlier where I feel like he got to like page a hundred and something of his script and thought, I've put so much into this film and I need to end this now. Because whatever company this was that put it out, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't pay attention to the studio, but whatever studio is not going to green light a two and a half hour comedy, I need to end this right now. Right. And that's where I kind of feel with this, with this film. Um, there's, there's a lot in it. So much happens in the film. And then it just kind of just ends. One element that I actually thought was kind of weird and it didn't really sell on me as much as I like the chemistry and I don't know the actors and actresses name, but the main couple. Um, yeah. the ones who are divorcing. Like, I like their scenes together and I think their fights, but it, it always comes off as like old married couple, like not we're about to get divorced, like just, just people bickering. giving each other shit for 10 minutes. I mean, you know, and it's like, I, I get it. It's, it, you got to keep the tone. I have no problem with that. It just always kind of felt a little unconvincing to me, I guess. Yeah. But I was like, I, I don't know. This seems like the, you know, if they were 20 years older, you'd use them as the old married couple in another comedy. Like, that's stuff they said to each other. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's kind of the point. Because at the end, of, like, the whole point of the film is that, I suppose, Jerry still loves Tom. I feel weird talking about their names are Tom, Tom and Jerry. Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, like, there's, like, they still love each other. And it's obviously this, this very weird dated thing where, she feels she needs to leave him for him to... It's all very dated, the whole sort of gender politics surrounding this um, and the reasons for their split up and everything like that. But um, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, you never feel like they 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 don't like each other or hate each other or don't want to be with each other um, through what they talk about. But maybe that's the point. I'm not too sure. It's not very... It's not articulated very well in the film, um, you know, how it's put together. But... Um, yeah, I think if I, as I as I think more about it and kind of hear y'all talk about it as well on this, I think that, that for me the way that I can kind of sum it up now is that, like even the ale and quail, the the club ale and quail club on the train. Yeah, those guys say no the crap out of me. Yeah, I really didn't like them. Right, just, just total assholes. Like I I feel like this is a lot of jokes that kind of worked on like a napkin or kind of worked when you're talking about it. Like, wouldn't it be funny if like this was in a movie? Maybe just in the wrong hands. Like, I, you know, if you look at the rest of Preston Sturgis' stuff, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. The ones I've seen, 
uh, Sullivan's Travels was not a screwball comedy. Like the Lady Eve was not like these are, you know, he has like a grace and kind of elegance to him and he's a good writer. And I feel like maybe he just was trying to push himself a little bit into this genre. Um, somebody who's seen all of his stuff may, may fight me on that and say he did a lot of great screwball comedies. I just I feel like this one just maybe he was a little bit out of his zone, had some good ideas. Maybe like Saturday Night Live skits or something where you're sitting around a writer's room, it seems funny, and then you see it live and it's not so funny. Um, that that That's just kind of how it hit me. Like there was a few good jokes. Um, I really hated the character Toto, like the way that the... Um, oh, the, yeah. Yeah. I forgot all about him. Yeah, that, his treatment is terrible. Yeah. Like, you know, may, may, again, maybe funny if you're like seven beers in, um, and, and and you try to put it on a script and and you know you get the movie made for I don't know for me it just didn't work never connected it as a whole yeah I feel like a lot of the things they did in this film were done like a million times better in some like it hot like all the train scenes mm. that happened in this film are a million times better in some like it hot which I think was about ten or so years after this maybe fifteen years after this so I kind of feel like Billy Wilder maybe even just saw this film and thought this could have been so much funnier. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then he did yeah, something like it. The Weenie King is the best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the Weenie King stole stole every scene he was in. <laughs> All right, and welcome back to Collection Corner. Uh, we, uh, we, I feel fortunate and, and and kind of excited. We get to do this two weeks in a row now. We've got some some fun interviews coming up here in the next few weeks, but. Uh, until until we get them recorded and scheduled, we actually get to talk about what we've been collecting. Um, probably the the biggest thing uh, I'll, I'll make it quick for me today. Um, I was very excited, so I'm a subscriber to Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, I think I've said that on here before, and so one of the perks of that is I get early uh, picking and shipping from the halfway to Black Friday sale. So I, I got it in relatively quickly, uh, and there's um, the the big the new titles that they put out uh, a couple couple box sets they put out uh, and they really went big on the partner labels uh, and then I was able to get some of their old Blu-rays like Dolmite uh, Death Row Game Show Death Machines like Death Force uh, Cutting Class a lot of these Blu-rays that did not have slip covers were on sale for like seven bucks which was great so um, all all in I got well over twenty movies. <laughs> Um, which, okay. Uh, Jeez. <laughs> uh, I hope and your it, wife knows about that. Well, so I, I got it in, uh, you know, the sale happens in late May and my birthday's June 13th. So I, I just happened to get it in around like June 9th or like 8th or 9th or something like that. And I was like, yeah, birthday present. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we opened it up on, on I waited, uh, we opened it up with my four-year-old, uh, on, on the actual birthday, which was fun. And he got to see um, some movies that had some some lurid content on the covers. First, like, did you have bat pussy in there by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but definitely, the, yeah. There's there's some ones where they don't shy away from on the covers uh, from from what's inside the movie. Um, so whether it's like gore or like gnarly looking aliens or or, or women of various uh, you know layers of clothing. Um, some, some funny comments from our four-year-old but a day, a day later he he goes you really like movies daddy huh <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That's sweet. Yes. yes i do um so 
super excited about that one. Um, and then uh, the, probably there, there's, you know, the trauma movies that Vinegar Syndrome puts out uh, are nice. So I've got a few different trauma movies from them now. Um, I got Flesh Eating Mothers was one of the ones I got in. Uh, and I, I think I've got three or four different trauma movies from them now, uh, which is fun. I, I like that partnership. Do y'all ever do y'all know much about the trauma uh, studio stuff? Only from what you've mentioned. Um, so practically little, very little. I've watched, I've watched some, not not a lot, but I've watched. Yeah, Kevin Bacon got his start there um, on trauma movies. Um, Billy Bob Thornton was in an early one. They're just like cheap horror films, is it? Yes, that's cheap. a fair way. It's got its own identity. I, I guess it's hard to call it cheap. I mean, it yeah, is, sorry. I should it's, probably, it's, I should probably, yeah, I should yeah. probably clarify by cheap. I mean, isn't like just from a budget standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely like you can. There's a, there's that old thing like uh, you. Can, I can't define what porn is, but I can tell you when I see it. Yeah. is <laughs> kind of the same way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's true. Like it's the kind of horror movie where like they'll 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 take a baseball bat to someone's head and right before it hits the head. They'll cut away to a watermelon with a smiley face, and the watermelon will blow up. <laughs> um, so they do everything like they just get creative with the special effects. But J- uh, James Gunn, right, the guy that did mm-hmm. um, yeah. Gardens of the Galaxy, yeah. he, he he was a big trauma guy. That's kind of like the biggest sort of celebrity that came out of that. And they're about to remake Toxic Avenger. I think there's been some chat on the Discord about that, but that'll be, yeah, yeah, that'll be the, the the big splash from them. So, anyways, the, so yeah, Vinegar Syndrome, I'm excited about, and then. I am now, I finally found uh, the slipcover for uh, uh, spine number one of Massacre Video, which is Hacko Lantern. Uh, somebody finally put it on eBay. And it was, uh, it wasn't, uh, surprisingly, it wasn't as much as I thought it was going to be when it went online. So it was a nice, it was under 100 bucks. I think it was even under 75 bucks when it went online. Um, so I, I got that. So now I'm complete on Massacre Video, all 10 of their titles. And then the 11th one is pre-ordered. Um, so... Those are the big ones for me. What about y'all? Um, I got a couple of just a couple of small pickups uh, this week. Um, just came in the door in typical me fashion. I had a pre-order that I forgot all about to the game through my through my mailbox, and um, that was a Eureka release that came out uh, for the Hands of Orlock. Nice. Uh, really nice slipcover special edition. Uh, I'd never seen the film. I'd mean I'd meant to watch it when. There was a load of um, German Expressionist films on the channel last year. It was one of the ones that were on my list to watch, and I never got around to it. Um, so it's nice to have a Blu-ray of it. At least I can watch it whenever I want. And then I got two new Criterions in, which just came out this month in Region B. I think they came out in May in Region A. And that's uh, Merrily We Go to Hell from Dorothy Arzner, who made Dance Girl Dance. I actually watched this one last night. Really, really great film. Dorothy Eisner was becoming one of my favorite filmmakers of the 30s. She was just so talented. She was just a great eye for direction, cinematography. Her shots are really well composed. And she can get really good performances from from her actors. So Merrily We Go to Hell was really great. And then one I haven't seen I'm looking forward to is Flowers uh, of Shanghai. And from how, I'm going to mispronounce this, Ho Hiao Hien. Uh, the Thai, the Taiwanese guy that everyone loves, that I actually haven't seen anything from. So, um, yeah, those are my three pickups. Um, obviously, all three were blind buys, and then but I watched Merrily We Go to Hell last night, and I really enjoyed it. So, if anyone hasn't picked up that one, 
definitely would recommend it, especially if you've seen Dance Girl Dance. And that's such an unhateable film. You just can't hate Dance Girl Dance. It's so fun. So um, if, if you like that one, this one's a bit darker. It's not as fun as Dance Girl Dance because um, it's about alcoholism and sort of um, what's the right word? Basically, yeah, just marriage issues, alcoholism. Uh, it's, it's a sort of darker film that still has its sort of lighter moments and it's just really, really well made. Great. Yeah, I might pick that one up. That one sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's great. I really recommend it. Um, my main thing uh, for this one has been uh, obviously we're not video podcast, so I'll show you guys my macabre <laughs> visions. So I'm excited. Oh, um, the set looks really awesome. Gr- yeah, it's great set. Um, it comes with nine of uh, Bava's films, uh, mostly his horror stuff. The only one it doesn't come with is Blood and Black Lace, which I have that one. I got that one as well. But this one comes with Black Sunday, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. I wonder where they got that name. Uh, Black Sabbath, Kill Baby Kill, uh, Five Dolls for an August Moon, A Bay of Blood, Barren Blood, Lisa and the Devil, and Rabid Dogs. I have seen Black Sunday, and that's it. So plenty of stuff here to watch. It comes, every one of them is a separate disc, which I always really like. Um, not like two movies, two or three movies on the same disc. So they're all cool. separated. has a nice book with it. Really excited to get that. Never want to look at that credit card statement again. So, it's, <laughs> but it's there. Um, beyond that, actually, today I was able to pick up Scream Factory's collection of The Fly and The Omen. Um, I found them together. It was really cheap because I got it at a secondhand store called McKay's, which is only in Virginia and Tennessee, uh, not Virginia, uh, North Carolina and Tennessee. Um, so, I was able to find them cheap and. Then I got the Leopard Man because of Scream Factory's super cheap on stuff right now for um, on Amazon because of the Amazon sale, which um, I have seen, but I don't remember it. So I'm going to check probably check it out soon, but nothing too major. Um, well, that, you, obviously, the Baba thing. The Baba set. The big one yeah. for me. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Everything awesome else is, set. honestly, because of the Baba thing, I can't get really much anything. <laughs> 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 wrapped up for a few months now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you spend more, without naming the price, did you spend more on the Baba set or on the Halfway to Black Friday sale? Uh, the Baba set. The set. <laughs> uh, which, uh, yeah, Chris mentioned the uh, vinegar syndrome. I did order from there, but because I am not a subscriber, I am waiting on my order. Um, it's great. Uh, I got seven titles coming from that. So that'll be nice when it finally gets here. <laughs> At least that one's nice. Like you've already paid, like you've already gotten paid since you got it again. So you're, you feel a whole lot better. Like, oh, this just feels <laughs> like Christmas. All right, and now we're going to be back with our second film. Um, it is called Wolf's Hole, or in its original title. Is that an I? Or is that an L? <laughs> Vlitchy Boda, let's go with that. And then it's by Vera. <laughs> I don't even know how to make that sound with my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> this is great podcasting. <laughs> I'll jump in here and say anyway, yeah. Vera oh, do you know what? I... Vera Chitilova. <laughs> right, that sounds it's awesome. The, it's one of those. It's one of the odd times where it it's it. You say it like it looks. Um, okay, because no I was like, business. yeah. Um, it is about a group of teenagers who are mysteriously invited to a skiing workshop in the mountains. There are eleven of them, but the camp supervisor insists there should only be ten, and that one of them is an intruder. 
So, uh, what did we think? Um, since me and Chris are, I think, are going to be fighting for who liked it more, I'll let you go first, Adam. Yeah. Um, I really, 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 really wanted to like this movie. I wanted to like it so bad. And I just, and I don't hate it. I just want to put this out here right now to start. I don't hate this movie under any circumstances. I think it's really fun. But it's just, it just doesn't click for me. There's just, I don't know. I just feel like there's a, a barrier in front of it. I just, I just can't quite break through. Whether it's the me not knowing anything about the historical context, so I don't really get the subtext, or yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it that just doesn't quite click, doesn't quite resonate for me. Like when when you read the synopsis there, that's from IMDb. You know, I think that that synopsis doesn't do the film justice as to what actually happens. It's a very, very, very basic summation of what happens in the film. There's so much context that you need to understand to really get a grasp um, of the politics that's going on beyond the film. Now, I know you guys are probably going to more focus on the genre element of its subversion of horror tropes, and that's cool. I like that part of it. But um, yeah, just I just couldn't quite break through. Like when I first started the film, I think I was about 20 or 25 minutes in and I messaged you, Zach, to say that you're going to love this film. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that was for me was that from the start, aesthetically, from a visual perspective and just the general vibe I got from the film, it was like sat in this weird gray area between like the sort of DIY-ishness of like Friday the 13th or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It had obviously the snowy landscape of the thing. And then it had this just sort of weird atmosphere that you'd see in Picnic at Hanging Rock. And I just kind of sat in between those three. But then it just kind of went a bit off the rails and a bit too crazy. And I just find it, I found it hard to follow. Um, so yeah, like I definitely don't hate the film under any circumstances, but it just, yeah, it just, it just didn't break through. And maybe from what you guys are going to say, maybe something will click for me and I'll, I'll think back and like it more. But yeah, for now, it just didn't, it just didn't all come together. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you on, like, the F-13 aspect. There's one thing when I was watching it, and I, you, I don't know, it's been a few weeks since I know you guys watched it, but there's that scene where they have, like, a, a food fight. Yeah. And it's such an odd, a little odd, it's a little bizarre, it doesn't really do much for the movie, and it always reminds me of those, like, you were kind of mentioning DIY, the sort of horror film, where you don't, you kind of just have a rough idea of a movie, and you're just kind of adding scenes you're like, you know what, that would be fun having the kids have a food fight and then they have to clean it up. And it's like it doesn't do a ton for the movie, but that's kind of how that feels. It almost has like this very loose feeling to it. And I could definitely see someone being almost turned off by that. Like, yeah, there's a, there's an underlying plot going all the way through it, but sometimes they're just doing stuff. Just yeah, yeah, you're filling time. You're doing you know I, they're doing some camp stuff very rarely. Like I've never seen a movie about a ski trip where I think they went skiing twice <laughs> yeah it's like the snake scene in friday the 13th where it, <laughs> yeah. it has nothing and i don't know even know why it's there they just want sean cunningham just wanted to kill a snake and put it on film that's the only reason <laughs> that exists <laughs> um yeah what did you think chris i actually I, I i think it was interesting from the horror perspective but the reason i like it so much is the same reason i like Bunuel. Films in that, or or Fellini's Amarcord in that, 
it's a they, there's like surrealism used to tell like a political story and like a thinly kind of a thinly veiled metaphor because uh, I I think the metaphor was I I don't know a lot about like Czech history and like I don't know a ton about exactly what was going on politically, but I could tell that it was a thinly veiled metaphor for authority right and for like like the way that they spoke the way that they blindly followed the leaders in that camp even though the reasons they were going to the camp were never fully described why they were so blindly excited to go to this camp was never really fully described why they had such control over this group like never fully laid out but like there was just this kind of blind uh, uh like authority that they followed and then there was a segment of that kind of rebelled and there was a group that kind of um pushed back and every time they pushed back there was no real consequences so you started to get this impression as the film rolled on that the view of like authoritarian figures it, at least in in uh Chitalova's perspective was that they really have no real power when the people stand up and kind of like push back right like they're only it's a perceived power but like there's no real power and then whenever things go wrong they go out and like flail around in the woods like a bunch of maniacs because like there's nothing they don't really have any real kind of weight or power and so that reminds me of like you know like i said Fellini's Amarcord talking about how fascism like stunts people's adolescence and growth or like uh Bunuel's Viridiana that we saw or like some of the ones that he's some of the other ones that he's made where it's yeah so anyways like i liked it for those reasons i guess um uh and and that that's just always the kind of film that draws me and like i get hooked on that kind of stuff so that's that's why i loved it i i think it's interesting cuz you know i i'll be honest with the fact that i know basically nothing about Czech history except for their names changed a bunch of times and i actually don't know what the name of their country is right now now that i think about it but it's a huge blind spot for me. It, it just is. I, I don't know the context of this movie. I think what connected me it to me, and it's probably going to, I'm not going to say ins, it's going to seem insensitive, but if it is a lot about the authoritarian, I don't know how the Soviet relations was then. Um, I saw it more, I guess, from a perspective of, you know, I work with kids. Uh, that That's my main job. I work with them pretty frequently. And to me, it almost seemed like a film that was kind of putting how kids of this age kind of deal with authority you know they feel like some of it's arbitrary they don't fully understand anything um they kind of you know they, they're they given these consequences almost to the fact of well one person can't be here why why can't this one person be here and it's you know it's it's the randomness of it it's the way you know the idea of teaching these kids to deal with these situations but never fully making them aware of what it is and I think that's what, you know, we'll go into it where the whole alien thing, I'm sure we'll get into, which kind of, <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, just to keep that vague. I feel like that's almost the way kids see, even though there's not a huge age difference here, there's enough to where, you know, kids that age, they don't see authority figures or parents or anyone as themselves. They don't see themselves as a smaller version of them. It's almost an othered version of them. You know, it's almost alien to them in a sense. Um, so it, it's these people that just don't make sense and that's how they deal with it. And that's kind of how I read the very end, which I won't spoil here unless we're going to talk about it, but it kind of leaves a bleak ending of where do they go from there? Yeah. They have something that seems positive, but is it really positive if you go anywhere past that? Mm -hmm. I like that. Whether it's, 
I'm just trying to think of if there's a way. So like whether it's kids or whether it's people that sort of, you know, are stuck in a childlike state in a strong authoritarian government. Mm-hmm. Um, may, maybe there's some similarities in what we're saying, even a little bit around just like not understanding fully like the, the people in your lives that kind of like have authority, but feeling like a weird pressure to like follow that. But then also like getting nervous when somebody kind of rebels, even though they might be right. Um, yeah. Breaking the system, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you do, you've done things a certain way for so long and someone going against that, you're worried it'll break everything. Yeah. In a sense. There's the, the, a girl in the movie who kept a dog. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. the dog. The, that girl. I can't think of her name. It, the dog's name was. I tried to look up what the dog's name meant if it meant anything, and I couldn't find anything. But <laughs> oh, that's a cool. I didn't even think to look that up. But like that was. I think that was the first time in the movie that someone openly rebelled against them. Right. Like they yeah. said, "Don't keep the dog," and she just did. Right. Yeah. And there yeah, was no I mean, consequences. Yeah, I mean the the you know just told her like, "Hey, the food's coming from your portion," and. That was kind of the end of it. Yeah. And and that kind of opened up, I think, this the, that thought process for me as I was going through it of just like, wait a minute, that's interesting that like there's no consequences here. And then there was the other kid that was like very openly rebelling, like the, the boy, kind Peter, of the tall yeah. boy that was openly, very openly rebelling. And then yeah. as they started to uncover more and more about these leaders, I think you saw them. As the film progressed, I think you saw them progressively as like uh, not really having their stuff together, even though they seem so together in the beginning. Like there's a scene that's really jumps out or sticks with my memory of where the the older gentleman, the older leader, like the grand leader is going outside and like kicking snow at the dog who's barking. And then there's the, the young boy who's like following him and he like points the boy to the dog and is like, do this thing. So then the boy starts kicking snow at the dog, kind of telling him to be quiet. And it was almost like this weird scene of kind of like, uh, uh, like you know, like the, the, he didn't really have it together. Like, like he was kind of like leading this kid along and showing him like the ropes of of this as he went along. Um, anyways, th- there's some stuff like that that kind of stood out where I just felt like the like an aptitude or the, uh, yeah, like the the inability for the leaders to to actually follow through on any of their um, threats or, or 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 commitments kind of was was shown a lot. So that idea of disorganization that you see a lot, you see a lot of in like Eastern European Soviet films that, are, that try to sort of undercut the idea of a author, authoritarian government where there seems to be like ineptitudes of it. Um, like The Fireman's Ball, which is another Czech film um, from, does his name escape me? It's the guy Milos who did, Foreman. yeah, Milos Forman, yeah, the guy who did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, one of the films he made when he was still in the Czech Republic deals with that as well, the sort of ineptitude of these um, these sort of higher-up figures where they're trying to do something that they feel is important and trying to get certain messages across, but they just end up being inept and things sort of falling apart. Like, like it's, I don't know, it's still, like with this film, I just it just doesn't, I don't know. Again, I feel like this would probably be a great film for Czech people to watch and be able to get what what Vera Shetlova is trying to say uh, it's probably very it's like it's difficult to watch it from that perspective for, as an outsider uh, without knowing any of the context behind all of this 
Um, so I suppose really now, even even at that point, we're all just kind of guessing as to what actually was going on with this film, uh, just trying to make our best guess at it. Yeah, totally. It does feel like it was made for an audience um, that that would that would you know resonate very closely with it. We we were talking about that a little bit with Xiaowu as well, right? Like it's fun to, I mean, different context because everybody was like crazy for that movie, including me. But yeah. it would probably be even more meaningful, like for somebody from a small Chinese village around like the late nineties. I suppose the main the main point the main sort of difference between those two is that Xiaowu pretty like really wears its message on its sleeve, mm-hmm. whereas Chitilova tries to obscure it by putting up a subversion of a horror film which i suppose you probably had to do for the political context um you know especially if this was still if this was still very recent and this government that she was undercutting was still in power she couldn't just probably couldn't just come out right and make a a politically dominant damning film she would have had to go to surrealist route in order to hide her message yeah I, i i agree there's a, there's a part in the film that happens later on where they're kind of talking about the sense of more uh, more immortality. Um, this is yeah. why it's yeah it's always tough to try to do this vaguely, but and that sense that it almost seems like a basically the idea of death is what causes chaos, like the the fear of that and everything is rooted in that idea. And that's why it's like, well, you're the only ones that can deal with that. And I think it's always interesting to use kids in that sense, because that's probably the least likely people who have that sense of mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, I even at 15, you, you have the you know, you have the idea of like, yeah, I know what death is. I know it's going to happen. But it's not until you're older where you're like, oh, that's 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 going to happen. So I think it's interesting to use kids when you're trying to illustrate that point, because they just don't have a true sense of that danger. And I almost feel like that's partially why they they seem to joke through every bit of it. Like they don't take any of it seriously, which is true to kids. Kids don't yeah. take anything seriously. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, I, I don't know. I almost feel like there is something there of what they're trying to say. If we're going with uh, the idea of the political message of how hard can it be to control people who don't fully understand what's going on? Because they never do. They don't understand their own life. They don't understand why they're there. We as the audience don't understand why they're there. We know they got an invitation for some reason. Yeah, we're given very little to go on. I suppose that's probably purposeful. So yeah, I suppose using the youth as well probably comes to the point where most revolutions are started by the youth. Like a lot of times, it's like students in college and stuff like that mm-hmm. will like start the revolutions. And obviously, I know these kids are younger. They're probably like sixteen maybe mm. 17 out of push. Maybe that's why she wanted to go with kids as well, because the youth are probably, are usually the ones who will rebel and go against this sort of, um, you know, this sort of regime that thinks knows what's best. And these kids are like, no, you don't know what's best. You know, we can make up our own minds, screw off that kind of thing. You know, I think Zach, you'd probably, you probably know this best, but wasn't the American revolution mostly teenagers? Yeah. I mean, it, you wanted younger, in all honesty, and I mean, either your requirements weren't much. This isn't the revolution, but you talk about like um, the Civil War. You know, the requirements to join then was uh, I think you had to be fourteen, and you had to have a top and bottom tooth, and that's it. Wow! It was so you could open the um, the the gunpowder. You had to have a top and bottom tooth to open the gunpowder up. It would have been so easy to dodge that draft. Just knock all your teeth. <laughs> Just start pulling your top teeth out. Yeah. 
no shooting yourself in the foot for these guys. Just knock off yeah. one of your, even just not all your teeth, just knock out like all your bottom ones and you're, you're, you're good to go. Good to go. Okay. But yeah, I mean, requirements to join revolutions, especially were young. I mean, I couldn't imagine joining revolution when I was 14 years old. I was, uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. Actually. <laughs> hey, on the other side of that now, almost, almost turning, I just turned 39. So I'm almost 40. Like, there's a lot of times throughout my day I feel inept. Like I, I, you know, like I can sympathize with the adult. If you, if you want to go with the like adult versus kid thing as well, even like whether or not it's the political or whether it's just kind of a, a metaphor about growing up or something. Like what you know, when you have a kid or like in my job, like I'm, there's a lot of moments throughout my days where I'm like not as together as I thought I was at 20 as well. Like you, you know, not. Not even coming to terms with your own mortality, but just coming to terms with the fact that like you may not be as amazing as you thought you were at 20 and having to like reconcile with that as well. Like that, you know, I think there's part of growing up where I, I can almost sympathize with the, <laughs> the leaders there a little mm -hmm. bit when you phrase it like that. Because um, the youth do have that arrogance of just like, well, this is clearly how the world is, right? Like, just do it this way or like, just do it that way. Like, what? why is this so tricky? Um yeah, and I mean, it comes right after your stage and childhood where you've, you're, you know, you ask all the questions in the world. Well, now yeah. you've asked all the questions and now it's the answer of, well, I know it now. So why are we doing it this way? And it, it's an interesting construct. And it's, you know, like I said, that may not be the purpose of this film. It's just, you know, for my job, how I read into it a little bit. But I think there is this sense that it, it's good to question and it's good to, you know, build it but there's that resistance too and that and that's kind of seems to be a conflict here as well that resistance between the established and the things can be better yeah i i that going back to my initial point i i think probably both interpretations are valid in the sense of like this came across to me like as a very kind of surrealist picture even though it was laid out very like very kind of bare like there wasn't you know surreal imagery or there wasn't a lot of like i mean i guess the people thriving around in the snow was pretty surreal, but, but outside of that, it was a pretty straightforward film, but I, I still think like the ideas, the concept, the amount that was left out, like all that is, is, is very similar to me for the reasons I love a lot of like the Haas films or Bunuel or, or any of these types we've mentioned. So one thing I thought, and I don't know if you guys caught this, I noticed that there's, I don't know if it quite breaks it, but there's almost this fourth wall break with the way the camera has them almost looking into it. Like there's a part where I know she's pointing to someone on the bed at like the old, the, the, the later girl, I can't think of her name, starts with a B, but she's pointing to one of them asking for matches. And it's almost like she's looking at the audience directly. And then of course it switches to show who she's actually talking to, but it does that a few times. And in some points it almost comes off as like a testimonial, almost like a diary, a momentary diary thing where they'll just look almost straight at the camera and say something and i just didn't know if you guys had any thoughts on that i just thought it was kind of an interesting way to go about it and it almost felt uncanny in a I way was in waiting, a sense. i was just waiting for someone to do like the jim halpert half smile <laughs> face. yeah uh, that didn't happen though so i was very disappointed i thought this was going to be the czech version of the office but <laughs> apparently it wasn't but no i actually i, I didn't catch that in all seriousness i, I didn't actually catch that well it's been a few weeks since i saw it now but i don't i don't recall catching that but it's it sounds cool in that respect if you're looking at it that way that they're talking maybe directly to the audience asking certain questions of the audience sort of putting the onus on them especially when you're making such a political film 
by doing that you're you're putting the audience the, the onus on the audience for them to really think for themselves as to what yeah. they think about what's going on rather than you getting just sucked into the picture and thinking what's character a thinking about character b you're putting the onus on the audience and making them think okay well wait what do i think is going on what do i think about this character or that character that makes me think of funny games have you all seen that yeah no i haven't uh, sorry neither anyway, version without spoiling anything that was one of my favorite parts of that film is they they like bring the audience into their their uh, malevolence, their mischief. And like you don't want to be in as the audience. It's not like you want to be doing what they're doing. But they, they use the fourth wall, I think, in a really creative way um, in that movie. But um, yeah, anyways, like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I like where y'all are going with that. I guess I didn't pick up on it either, but I like where that conversation is going. Uh, that's super interesting. I, I forgot to mention this in the beginning. It's not on the They Shoot Pictures master list at all? I know it's on IMDb. It only has like 400 and some ratings. Like, is not what they say. 439. I'm pretty sure Letterboxd is even lower. I'm just going to double check. It was very low from what I saw. Um, Let me look. Where is this? It makes me wonder if this is the Belladonna argument. Do y'all remember uh, when when, uh, Craig and Dennis were talking about Belladonna of Sadness and they said, like, there, there, this was not on critics' watch lists until the 4K restoration came out, and all of a sudden people started watching it and like loving it. Yeah, I suppose that happens a lot, really, with any sort of film. It gets kind of lost in amongst the mix, and then when someone brings out a new version or a restored version, it gains popularity. I said the same thing when um, when we did the sort of IMDb breakdown episode, and we were all kind of surprised that Come and See was so high. And it pretty much corresponds with the Criterion release of the new restoration that nobody had been able to watch the film for decades. And then suddenly people are able to watch it and suddenly now it jumps up on huge lists. I'm sure Set and Tango is probably going to do a similar thing in the next couple of years because obviously it's become available now through Arbelos in the US yeah. and through Artificial Eye in Region B. Uh, whereas it was it was out of print on DVD. I don't know, I don't know if there was ever a release in the US, but I know... Artificial Eye had a DVD release that's been out of print for like 10, 15 years for Satin Tango. So I'm sure that's probably going to take a similar leap up as well. Uh, and maybe if this got a release from Criterion, I don't know if this is part of any sets, even like an Eclipse set from them or anything like that. But um, maybe if this got a release, it would get picked up. Like only 768 letterbox users have said they watched this movie, which is an insane. I feel, I feel so special right now. <laughs> we account for, like our film club accounts for like one and a half percent of that viewership <laughs> you know it's kind, of, it's kind of crazy like that, that low of a number especially for such a revered filmmaker Shitlova, highly respected in, in her field it's not like she's a very obscure filmmaker like her film daisies is on the sight and sound top 250 so it's not like she's like this weird obscure director that nobody even knows about and um, it's just this is like a later film after the whole boom of Czech New Wave is kind of later on in, in the sort of late 80s, whereas most of the Czech New Wave stuff was like 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, so this kind of came after the boom and she never moved to Hollywood like Milos Forman did. So she didn't really get that sort of extra, you know, ec- extra viewership that Foreman would have got because of his American pictures. Well, between yeah, think- now- oh, sorry, good. No, I was just um, I was just gonna note, kind of add on to that about the time period it came out in 1987, I Seven. believe, 
and you'd kind of mentioned the slasher thing too. And there's definitely elements there. There's no way they ever saw this movie without seeing a slasher movie before. Oh, sure. um, yeah. And it, it's kind of interesting. And in that, I don't know if that plays a part in it, but it was kind of the fatigue of the slasher genre about, you know, that's kind of where it starts is in 87, 88, uh, Friday 13th part six had already come out, which was already kind of getting meta into the genre. Um, I was just thinking, how many times has Jason died at this point? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is when they're bringing him back to life with a yeah. um, with a, with electricity. I mean, uh-huh. it, and then you have Freddy. I mean, this he would have been in his third or fourth movie at this point. Michael um, Halloween Part Four comes out in the the following year. Um, so I mean, it's it's a saturated genre, and I and I you know it's obviously there's a lot of reasons it didn't come in, but the idea that somebody looks at oh it's a bunch of campers at a lodge and people are going after them doesn't sound particularly interesting, even though it takes a completely different turn from, you know, a Jason in the snow, which I still want to see. And this kind of comes full circle in what we're, what I said at the start, when you gave the, when you gave the IMDb summation, it does not give the film justice at all. It, when you read that, it just sounds like a generic slasher film. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, when it's, it's, it's as far away from that as you can get really while still retaining some of the, um, you know, some of the atmosphere of a, of a of a generic sort of slasher film where it always takes place in a very specific kind of location, you know, like Camp Crystal Lake or in Haddonfield or in your dreams with Freddy or, you know, Sleepaway Camp or whatever. It has that kind of generic location and all these teens go and there's a mystery, but it, it moves away from that so swiftly. So I do pretty- want to note one part is really funny where the one kid has the killer's tattoo on his arm and they make a big oh, deal yeah. about that later and the and just because it's translated it, it just comes off kind of funny because it's like do you know what killers means and she's like no murderers <gasps> <laughs> it just made me laugh so much. like i know it's a I'll, translation problem yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, a really rough translation i mean it must have some kind of <laughs> slang meaning in in czech republic do you know what killers mean? no murderers what <laughs> pikachu face <laughs> Do you do y'all want to talk about the alien thing or just I mean literally it would just be us guessing. I just have a really brief point. And I I'm pretty sure you saw Save the Green Planet because I'm pretty sure you wrote a review on it. Did you see Save the Green Planet, Zach? It's on my very long list. The aliens kind of rem- I don't know why, but the aliens just gave me a Save the Green Planet kind of vibe. I don't know right. if that if that came across for you, Chris. I mean, no, but as soon as you said it, like, yes, that's totally, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that's just, right. that's all I could think about watching these aliens, because these are probably the same race of aliens from Save the Green Planet. <laughs> if they're aliens at all, right? Like That's very true. That's the, very true. Because I mean, like, they I, might just be trying to scare the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah, there, there's like this weird kind of, like, uh, not supernatural, but like there's this weird element with like, the way that they're writhing around in the snow and, and, and they're, they're like slightly off kilter as people. So they could be aliens, but there's nothing, they, they don't seem uh, to be invincible at all. It could just be on a load of drugs, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was the eighties. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess we could put some good vibes out. This feels like the kind of thing that would either be on a world cinema project from Criterion, those box sets they put out. Yeah, um, maybe one of those. If there's like a check box set that's put out, possibly a, a Chitalova one. I just did a quick check, and I think she has 16 features and some other TV documentaries after that. So it feels like within the range of something that could be a mega set one day, possibly. But 
otherwise it has like grasshopper films or milestone written all over it so i hope between all that they could somebody could pick it up um it would be cool to have people talking about it i think it's a film that would what people would like if they saw it or at least remember um chris i'm curious since you you liked it quite a bit um Adam, I know you liked it as well, but I don't think it ended up on your top 10 for what we've done in the club. Where did it end up on yours if you do that, Chris? I haven't actually, well, did I rank? I don't know if I've ever actually put together a formal ranking on that. But, um, you know, this this film club has, honestly, like some of the films I really loved that we've seen. Like, Panic for me is really high, right? Like, um, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, super high. I, I don't know. Just trying to think where this would fit. It, it's probably between 10 and 20. What are we up to now? Like 49, right? This next yeah, one, 49. 49 is the next one, yeah. It might be worth a year. It's crazy. It might be worth putting together a top 50 or something just because that's like a – where's that landmark now? It's probably between 10 and 20 for me, I guess. What about you? I actually have it at three. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, Night of the Hunter and then Woman in the Dunes are my top two. Nice. Zach, you're you're gonna hate what I have above this film, man. If you have Fat Girl, I think we should just end the podcast now. <laughs> Fat Girl is like five spots above it. <laughs> oh my god! And this I bet is it's above images too. Oh no, not a hope. <laughs> cool. So we're we're ending now on any other business as we normally do. Uh, just a quick segment at the end of the podcast, just to just highlight a film we've watched recently that we like. It doesn't have to be Criterion doesn't have to be technically good just something we want to give a shout out to um i'm gonna hop in this week and just gonna talk about a film that i know you guys probably liked and it was a film that was picked pretty early in the film club i i I think i watched it i say i think but I, i was pretty sick that week i had the flu and i'm like so certain i watched this film but i remembered nothing about it i didn't even put it in my rankings for the film club stuff we've watched so far I didn't want to do it a disservice, uh, but I watched it again this week, and it's um, Videodrome from um, from Cronenberg. Honestly, like I, I, I'll be honest, I did not have high hopes going into this film. It sounds trashy. I heard Cronenberg's weird. I just thought it would be trashy, and it's like so far above that. It's just a really such a well crafted film. Cronenberg, I was so I, honestly, and I, I, I kind of feel like I'm talking down about him, but I, I, I don't want to seem like that. I just wasn't expecting as well a made a film, just from a cinematic point of view. The direction is excellent. The cast is phenomenal. The way he sets up the shots, the way he sets up the story, the special effects, it was all just an absolute knockout of a film. I did not think I was going to like it. I kind of almost half forced myself to watch it because I want to try and catch up on the couple of film club films I missed really early during the film club. And this was one of them. But I absolutely, I loved, I loved, loved, loved this movie. And it makes me want to go watch more Cronenberg if, if any of them are as sophisticated and well put together as this. Because like even though the film is about trash TV, <laughs> mutilation, snuff, <laughs> whatever, like it really like the, even though it's a film about those kind of that kind of content, this film never really feels seedy or trashy despite it having all the hallmarks of CD and Trashy, is just something about how Cronenberg makes the film just elevates it to just just mm-hmm. great, great filmmaking. Uh, I don't know how, how I, I don't honestly remember what you guys thought of it back, I don't even know if you were even in the film club, Chris, back in those days, 
Um, what what do you guys like Videodrome? I love Cronenberg and I love Videodrome. The only thing I always say is I love Cronenberg as long as I don't ever have to listen to him. <laughs> I think I think he is a great filmmaker, but he's so annoying to listen to because he thinks he's a great filmmaker. Oh, too. okay, right, okay. <laughs> No, but he is. Like, I actually really like his son. His son has started making movies. He's made two. He made last year's Possessor, which is yeah. phenomenal. But Videodrome is great. Um, I don't like it as good as Scanners, but I think Videodrome is really good, too. Scanners over the guy's head blows up, doesn't it? I know the meme. I'll need to get that. That one's on the channel right now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's in the, it's in the uh, collection as well. No. Oh, is it? Okay. I'm going to watch that at some point. That's cool. Yeah, I'm, I, I think Cronenberg's one of those guys who's like an academic. Um, and there's a lot of like subtext and layers in all of his scripts. Um, I, I yeah, I'm, I've been a huge fan. I actually randomly the first, I think the first Cronenberg movie I saw was History of Violence. That's a good one. His and that and Eastern Promises. Yeah, that was Viggo Mortensen. Is he in yeah. one or both of those? Yeah. Cool. Uh, History of Violence is amazing. Like I just. I just remember sitting in the theaters being like, whoa, how have I not seen this guy before? I and forgot he made that, to be honest. Like, I just have him he's synonymous with body horror in my eyes. Because yeah. obviously that's what he's sort of mainly known for. So I, I forgot think he made History those. of Violence is a comic book, too. I think it's actually based off a comic. Oh, cool. I want to say, I could be completely wrong, but I feel like it was. Well, uh, definitely a filmmaker I need to get more into. Because like, that was my first of his. I was kind of afraid to watch it because... It just seemed like just kind of trashy, but yeah, it was so much, so much more than that. So definitely need to need to watch more of his. Um, what, what about you, Zach? What have you seen? Um, Chris, I, I'm sure you've heard of me talk about this maybe enough, but I will bring it up on here um, since I ordered it recently. Um, while I had the house to myself for the week, one of the first ones I watched, I watched a bunch of stuff, but I watched The Velvet Vampire, which is um, actually somebody in our... Um, our group actually has it in their top 100 as well. Um, it's it was made by Stephanie Rothman, who is complete is 100 influential when it comes to women directors. She's fantastic. Um, she mostly did exploitation stuff. That was kind of her what she could do. She started with Roger Corman and just kind of stuck with it for a while. Uh, but Velvet Vampire is incredibly unique. Like you know, when you think of exploitation, or in this case, it's sexploitation, you think of gratuitous sex and violence and those elements are sort of in there but i i guess because it has that that woman's touch to it the the nudity feels very tasteful like you're not used to really saying that in this type of film but there seems to be a purpose behind it there there is a lot of commentary on sexuality um just to kind of give it a heads up what this movie is sort of about this couple is traveling and their car breaks down in the desert and this woman offers to kind of house them for a little bit and she just doesn't seem quite right uh celeste varnell who anybody who's a star trek fan is probably pretty familiar with her she plays the vampire it's not really a spoiler she's a vampire um but absolutely phenomenal movie it's uh very enjoyable it's free on everything all the time like to if you have Tubi, i know i don't think you have that in ireland um adam but there's usually something it's on for free and sadly the scream factory blu-ray is outrageous because they only made a thousand copies but that's neither here nor there um you know and i recommend people get into her anyway especially if you're more of an exploitation mood and i know now why you waited for while you had the house to yourself to watch those kind of films okay (laughs) (laughs) 
right after that to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that was first, obviously. Double feature. <laughs> Daughters of Darkness was next. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. Uh, so probably the one I want to talk about, it's been a little bit, watched fewer movies this week than I would normally, just for some personal stuff that was going on. But I, I saw, so y'all know that the, I've gotten really like deep into the partner labels of uh, Vinegar Syndrome, like the ones that are, coming on to their to their partner labels, a uh, growing number of partner labels. And Utopia has put out some super interesting either documentaries or docufiction. Mm-hmm. And, and they've gotten a hold of a couple of films that like really blur the line between documentary and fiction. And I just saw the next one in their in their line. Um, let me just double check really quickly that it's Utopia. Yeah, it is. Okay, great. So it's called Crestone. And it's uh, it's a movie that was made and it's really recent, yeah, 2020, and it follows these SoundCloud rappers that go out into a, a city called Crestone, Colorado, and try to set up this sort of like community, like uh, like like a cult almost, like a they try to set up like a little commune of like you know uh, people that want to like support each other. There's this vision of like. Uh, kids growing up together and people sharing and like it's one of those type of kind of communities that has a lot of good intention um but it's it's done the 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 founders are all young like stupid men (laughs) they're like stoners and like you know whatever but like they they're not the kind of people that like should be leading cults and like communes and stuff they kind of have this vision to do it with like no real plan of how and so they get out there and they're like scrounging for money for food. Like there's this one scene where the guy brings back like a like a little pack of bologna and like they fry bologna uh, on, a, on a dirty pan and there's no silverware. So he has to pick it up and turn it with his hands and they serve it on dirty plates. And it's it's just like, you know, like these are not the people that should be leading a, a revolution. Um, and but their hearts in the right place. They're interesting characters. And as the movie goes on, you get to see kind of like the, 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 that thing that people talk a lot about of like Instagram reality, Instagram versus reality. And, and you get to see sort of like the perception they have in their music videos and the way that they portray themselves versus like everything that's going on behind the scenes. Um, it's really well made. I, I think there's, there's a few pieces I don't like. Like I don't like the narrator. I don't like the way that she kind of narrated the movie. But out, outside of the narration, it's really well told told story very interesting characters um and uh it's possible that even some of it is fiction like there's some some things that don't really match up as a pure documentary so there's kind of that intrigue around it as well um so yeah anyways crestone from utopia is uh probably one i'll i'll talk about and then oh really quickly i saw aliens 3 and i don't get why people don't like that movie it's not that bad did you watch assembly cut or regular cut just theatrical cut. I don't know. Really? Right? Okay. I, I don't mind the theatrical, but uh, the assembly cut. Definitely watch the assembly cut. Like, dumb premise, right? Like, yeah. Like, the premise is dumb. Uh, totally not tied to, like, the Alien franchise in the sense that, like, it t- takes it to this kind of weird place of, like, an all-male prison and a weird spirituality, like, kind of things. And, like, just, I don't know. That part of the movie didn't make sense. But, like, the execution of it and, like, the ending has a very Terminator 2-style ending. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. Like it's I basically did. Terminator 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, exactly. we, 
we just we just needed Ripley to give a thumbs up as she was going down, and it would have just <laughs> that would have been. Or no, get get the fucking chest burster to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it was enjoyable. I don't know, like it was a dumb movie, but like I, I guess it's where it comes right after one and two. Like there's still debates of Alien One or Aliens or is better, and it's definitely Alien. Just thought we clear that up, but I, I guess. Yeah, I think it's just about if you prefer, do you prefer horror or do you prefer action? And people who prefer action for aliens, people who prefer horror prefer alien. So doesn't doesn't comprehend to me. <laughs> so I always chalked it down because aliens is more action packed. Oh yeah, and alien is much more slow burny kind of. Probably why I also like Terminator better than Terminator Two. Yeah, I mean, like James Cameron and and Michael Bay are very similar directors, right? We're getting some right. hot takes here. Here we go. Let, I want to let hear him it. finish. Let him finish. <laughs> I mean, not not strong on dialogue, and they make movies that are like super appealing. Like, I think I just saw Aliens as well. I'm kind of going through them all, right? Like, dumb movie, right? But super fun. Like, she's driving a Batmobile at one point. Like, <laughs> like the movie's dumb, right? But like, it's fun. I mean, I enjoyed it, right? In the same way that like Michael Bay makes some movies that I'm like, Bad Boys Two is like, what a dumb movie, but like, it's got it's fun. Like, it's entertaining. I don't know if that is that a hot take. I thought it was, was fair. I just thought we were going to say that they were like equivalent directors, and I'm like, ooh, this is going to be interesting. Yeah, when you're comparing <laughs> styles, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, when you're comparing yeah, output, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I've I've never liked Michael Bay at all, and like the more stuff, the more James Cameron stuff I watch, I'm not sure how I stand on him either. Like, I know he's like had the highest grossing movies ever and all that stuff, but like, I think he's more of like a like a technician, right? Like he's, he does his amazing like innovations and in technology that people use, but is, I don't see a good storyteller. Like I can't really, I don't know. Uh, he's an incredibly overly simple storyteller. I, I, that's the way I've always kind of looked at it. Like his stuff is incredibly basic. I mean, cool ideas. You look at Terminator, but what is Terminator? It's a slasher movie yeah. with an Android. <laughs> yeah. Like it's super basic, but I love Terminator. I, I really do. And the way he, you know, you know, his, his is the one where, like, if you listen to his commentaries, incredibly fascinating guy. Like, how he comes up with stuff, and it's like, you're right, technicals? You watch Titanic? He built 80% of the fucking Titanic to film that movie. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's an incredibly basic story of Romeo and Juliet on a, on a tragedy. Yeah. And avatars dances with wolves in space. I mean... Yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, whatever. I guess maybe I don't. Know, I didn't realize James Cameron was a hot take. I, maybe he's beloved, but I just think like the more the more I just I just wish he wouldn't write dialogue. Let me just say it that way. I think he's that's not his strength. <laughs> no, it definitely isn't. Though I did learn with uh, Cameron that he was the map painter for uh, Escape from New York recently, and I think that's awesome. It's cool. That's that, cool. That, that totally fits somehow. Yeah, I love. He's that. a great artist. Like looking at his like, um, how what do you call it? You know, when they're when you're doing the planning stage, I'm blanking out on the thing of it. But when you're doing concepts, yeah, like storyboarding, his storyboarding is incredibly detailed. And then you go look at Ryan Johnson's, and it's stick figures. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, but will it ever beat Kurosawa's, who painted <laughs> like oh, literally God. painted portraits yeah. for each storyboard? Yeah, like, that's what I want in my movie. <laughs> yeah. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. You can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.